0: Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Welcome to the second part of my conversation with the International Equity Research Team. Chris, Chendor, and Itang are back to discuss the estimation of intrinsic value while incorporating currency, cultural and regulatory differences, as well as emerging and frontier markets and the prospect of a rising rate environment. Some of us are recording remotely still, so I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy the second episode with Diamond Hill's International Equity Research Team. So investing in international markets provides additional layers of complexity as we've been talking about um, quite a bit already relative to US markets and we've talked about currency exposures but you know we alluded to earlier on cultural differences and then there are regulatory factors how do these different aspects impact how the team estimates intrinsic value for different companies around the globe
1: yeah it's i mean the short answer is it, it goes into all of our inputs but i mean our process is the same right we're still trying to Come up with what we think is a fair value, um, you know, for the investment that we're making. There's a lot of different inputs that go into arriving at that fair value estimate. And in the international space, um, you know, like you mentioned, there's an added layer of complexity um, that we need to incorporate into our assumptions, uh, you know, to make sure that we're capturing the, you know, the proper risk um, involved in the investment, you know, relative to what we think the company is worth. So. Um, Like I mentioned, coming up and understanding um, with what those inputs are is one thing. But again, I think importantly, just as importantly, is staying consistent, you know, that we're pricing these risks, whether it be cultural or regulatory or, you know, what have you, that we're keeping that consistent from one country to another with the investments that we make You know, so that ultimately when we come up with a fair value of the company that all of that is priced in and and priced, you know, to the best of our ability as accurately as possible. So I think that's, that's probably the key. And we, we take this, you know, this process and do this across each country and each country is going to have, you know, different, different impacts um, from that perspective, you know, just to take kind of a quick example that I think kind of highlights some of this is, uh, you know, I, I think we've all kind of read um, about the uh, you know, the Chinese regulatory situation. Uh, it's kind of been front and center in in the news lately. Um, and this is kind of an example of regulatory risk that is, you know, kind of different and unique to some of the other markets. So, you know, of course, China is not a democracy. It's a one party system. Um, and so they're able to move kind of quickly and, and with a big scope as well in terms of implementing the regulations, you know, that they want to implement, you know, for whatever reason is driving that. Um, and so we kind of we've seen that within uh you know, the non or the for-profit education sector, also in real estate, and then also in, in, in the tech space here more recently. So, you know, the, the ability to kind of, uh, you know, have an impact on the valuation of these businesses is, uh, is pretty quick and swift compared to, you know, maybe a developed market uh, in, in Europe, for example, that is, you know, has a two-party system or is a little bit um, you know, that, that type of uh, drastic change is a little bit less onerous. And so, um, you know, for when we own some of these, uh, some Chinese companies that have been under this regulatory pressure, and especially in the tech space, but you know, that's where the work that I was talking about ahead of time comes into play. And to make sure that we're pricing the, the you know, the risk of increased regulation accurately, you know, this shows up in, in things like our discount rate, that we're using to discount the cash flows back to, to today. There'll be a risk premium you know, for regulatory risk. Um, it also shows up in, in the growth estimates um, you know, that we're using maybe you know, with the ability to, um, to come down with regulations, but also in China, the, you know, the, the Chinese tech space itself is one of the most competitive markets, um, I, I mean, maybe globally in the, in, in the tech space. So the changes that come from that are, are swift and and uh, and come quickly as well. So maybe, you know, we're a little bit more conservative on our growth rates, um, margin assumptions. And then ultimately that that all kind of impacts the multiple and the fair, you know, what multiple we think is fair, you know, for, for paying for a, a business that is, you know, subject to these conditions. So it hits kind of all the key inputs that we're making um, when we try to assess fair values of businesses. But at the same time, I mean, if we can price, those risks effectively, right, are, are the that maybe the fair value as we see it of the company is going to be worth less given kind of the onerous, uh, you know, additive uh, measures that we're implementing into our fair value assessment. It may be lower, but if the market price, you know, with those risks incorporated, is still. Is still below what we think it's worth, and there's an attractive enough margin of safety, you know, as measured by our estimate of what we think the fair value of the business is versus what the current price is, and we think it makes sense to, uh, you know, invest in a in a business like it like that. But you know, just I think the biggest and, and the key picture and the and the big thing to do is really kind of. Be able to price those risks that are out there and price those, you know, as accurately as possible, you know, just given all the inputs and all the, uh, the information that we have out there to do so.
2: Totally agree. And, and maybe just another uh, aspect is um, I want to point out w- when uh, estimating intrinsic value of the different companies that we cover around the world is that this might depend on the nature of the business. Or, or the sector in which the businesses are in slightly. So for example, you know, I mentioned Global Luxury. I mean, these are global iconic brands, right, that are being sold to global customers worldwide. So, I mean, it's probably a little bit similar to maybe healthcare, maybe Chandor will talk about it later, but maybe it's a little similar to uh, healthcare global companies. Right, they sell worldwide. So it doesn't matter if the, the company itself is American or Swiss or French. At the end of the day, they compete with one another, assuming they sell the same category of products. Right. Um, so you evaluate them that way accordingly as one sector, global companies. Right. But then at the same time, on the other hand, you have certain types of businesses that are more idiosyncratic and more regional. For example, Uh, Think about a bank in Peru, it probably has very little to do with a bank in Thailand, right? Those are very idiosyncratic uh, businesses, right? So they are subject to their own uh, business cycle, economic business cycle, interest rate, credit cycle. So it's very different from one another. So you almost can't look at them from a kind of a global business perspective. So I just want to point those things out a little bit, but you know, because of the differences across our coverage, across the sectors and the companies that we cover, it's also you know very exciting because at any given point in time, I mean, they're doomed to be some country, some sector, some companies within those country and sectors that are probably being um, that probably experiencing some form of market dislocation. So again, like Chris said. It's a matter of figuring out, are those market dislocation justified or not? And um, if we think the rewards more than the, 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 the risks that we take, then maybe that should be a potential investment opportunity. So our job is very exciting in that sense because we have abundance of potential opportunities given we cover the whole world.
3: In terms of the healthcare perspective, one of the hallmarks of the healthcare industry in my mind is idiosyncratic risk. I mean, it's very difficult to compare, you know, a large pharma company A to a large pharma company B, a large device company A, to a large device company B, because they have different products. They have different patent cycles. They have different life cycles. They might, they might be focusing on different markets. And each of these markets have their own risks that is, that is embedded. So I think even though our process is the same, the variables that drive the valuation of these businesses differ from, depending upon the unique situation of that given asset that we're trying to value. So, I mean, you can have an an example where you have many countries that have public healthcare system paid for by the public. When you look at a public healthcare system, your focus should be somewhere around what public spending should be, right? But then there are other markets where it's not public spending, it's retail spending. So in, in some other countries, especially emerging markets, insurance doesn't pay for your genetic drug at the at the pharmacy. At that point, it's not about public spending, it's about income growth. So as we look at different companies across the world, we have these idiosyncratic risks, but all of them are embedded in our models and reflect in our volumes, our pricing assumptions, our margin assumptions, our, our required rate of return. So it, it eventually makes its way up into a model, and our process is very consistent as far as as, as far as I know. So the I mean, there are are binary risks for which we have to understand what the risk reward could be over time. So for example, to use China as another example, China just instituted what what they call as the volume-based procurement system by which the market went from pretty much a free market competition of different drug players, could be local, could be domestic, entering the Chinese market, um, negotiating individually for individual provinces and building their own market. Very recently, uh, the Chinese government said that, you know, we're going to have a bidding process where the government will decide who the supplier should be, and they get majority of the market. So that overnight changed the risk perception of any company that's depending on growth in China. There are several European companies that rely a lot on the growth of the Chinese market. So those are just some examples where it, it, on, on the surface level, a pharma company is a pharma company, but we have to look at the idiosyncratic risks that drive those companies. So that's, again, like I, I agree with eating the sense that it is very exciting because you're looking at things very individually.
0: Let's take it a, another layer deep. So we talk about currency, we talk about regulatory and cultural differences, but an, another difference. From domestic equity markets is the ability to expand the opportunity set beyond developed countries to emerging markets and possibly even frontier markets. So two-part question. One, does the international team's mandate allow for investments into both emerging and frontier markets? And two, if so, how do you balance the risk-reward dynamic for these sometimes more volatile markets than what we see in the developed markets?
1: Yeah, I can I can take a stab at this and then uh, have everybody jump in, um, but yeah. So f- f- to question one, yes, uh, we are mandated to be able to um, invest in emerging and frontier markets, and um, I think you know just first of all, you know, operating capacity constrained strategies like we do at Diamond Hill I think that allows us the opportunity to maybe access some of these markets where you know some of the some of the non-constrained funds and our competitors maybe uh, you know have a little bit more difficulty accessing just due to their size so um, but we do so as of year end um, 2021 we have about 19% of our investment portfolio within uh, what's considered emerging markets um, and then so we're mandated up to 30. So we have been able to find, you know, a pretty decent amount of attractive opportunities within the emerging market space. Um, and there, there are, there's pluses and minuses to investing in emerging markets, just like there are, you know, in any other market. Um, but on the positive side, I think emerging markets have a lot of, you know, strong growth um, ahead of them, just with, uh, you know, some of the dem- demographic tailwinds that some of these places are experiencing. Um, And then also, you know, some, some of these companies have limited competition in terms of of foreign investment. So um, a lot of times you can find a company that is really growing strong, has some strong tailwinds behind it um, with that sort of less of a, uh, at least at this point, less of a, you know, it big international competitive threat uh, just because the market opportunity may be small. So um, on the negative side, of course, there comes with, you know, lower liquidity, there's some regulatory risks, as we mentioned before, political, um, some corporate governance and really, you know, I guess laws um, protecting minority shareholders as well. So, you know, there's a lot of different things that need to be accounted for on the risk side as well. But again, just going back to earlier comments, if we're able to find a, a business that we think is, is high quality and attractive and can price those risks, those, I mean, these would be an added layer of risk even on top of a developed Uh, international um, company, for example. But if we can get a handle on those things and and price those, what we think is accurately and still come up with an intrinsic value estimate that, you know, is, is significantly above the current price, you know, again, offering us a a pretty attractive margin of safety, you know, then we think it, it makes sense to, uh, you know, to invest in, in a company like that. And maybe one of the, one of the big differences within emerging markets relative to a developed market is, you know, maybe, that margin of safety, so that gap, you know, between what the current price is and what we think the business is worth, you know, maybe that gap needs to be a little bit higher in order to entice, uh, you know, investment, just given, like I said, all the risks uh, that are involved. Um, So that's another way, you know, in addition to the inputs that we talked about, Previously, when coming up with intrinsic value, but having that added margin margin of safety as well, um, you know, just to protect us uh, for the for another layer of risk is uh, is one of the one of the ways we do that as well.
2: Yeah, I, I would just echo what Chris just said. Um, I think uh, first of all, I think I read somewhere that emerging market equities, in terms of valuation relative to developed market. Is something like at a 15-year low today. Um, so yes, emerging market as a whole, I think is, um, if you just look at that stat, is very attractive uh, today. But then that's just speaking in generalities in terms of indices, um, benchmark indices. I think, like you know, like I mentioned before, I think there are mispriced opportunities. Um, in any market, there can be mispriced opportunities in any market, DM or, or EM. Um, so in terms of investment decisions, like Chris said, it's again, bottoms up. So it's analyzing the attractiveness of the individual company itself. And if it happens to be EM, great. Uh, but if not, as long as the margin of safety is there and is wide enough, and we appropriately accounted for all the risks, in that particular investment, and uh, and the wa- margin of safety is wide enough in that investment, then we will still pull the trigger, regardless if it's DM or EM. So in that way, I would say, we're generally speaking very market agnostic. It really depends on the individual opportunity case by case.
3: I totally agree with uh, eating in the sense that there are pockets of overvaluation and undervaluation. And there are also sectors that are more attractive than others when you compare it to the US versus Ex US markets. Um, but also, one of the things that I get excited about is this basically the, the growth of a given end market. So, if you are looking at a specific sector or a specific subsector, what gets you excited is potential growth over a long period of time. Is there opportunity even available to a given investor? And when I look at healthcare, for example, I mentioned this at the beginning of the, of the podcast the unmet need is humongous. Half the world's population don't have access to healthcare services. The number of people who are gonna be 60 years old and above is gonna double in the next 25 to 30 years. Emerging market countries are aging, which means they need a lot more long-term and chronic care. And you see a lot of these demographic shifts happening in emerging markets. Meanwhile, they're also getting wealthier. Now the question is, you can ask yourself, are they gonna be stuck in the middle-income trap or are they gonna continue to grow? Regardless, there is still so much unmet need that the end market end market growth in my mind in several of these countries and markets is very attractive so just to give you an example china is sec- currently the second largest healthcare market in the world it's worth about one trillion just to give you some perspective the us is about 3.8 trillion and the global market is 10 trillion so china with 1.3 1.4 billion people accounts for 10 percent of the market it only spends $1,000 per patient per year. Meanwhile, in the US, you spend 10,000. Now we can argue that we spend too much, but let's take Germany or another European country, they probably spend about five, six, seven thousand six, $7,000. There's still a large difference in dollar terms of what is being spent on healthcare. And if you look at other markets that are growing really fast, now China's kind of slowed down a little bit, it's probably growing mid to high single digits, but you have Russia, you have Brazil, you have India, you have Indonesia, these markets are growing almost double digits you know, and there's tremendous opportunity to pick quality companies that that have the right technology and the right management, they allocate capital very efficiently and are able to grow with this market over a long period of time. So I think in that regard, there are many opportunities in, in, in these markets and all we have to do is look at these companies from a bottom-up perspective, understanding that they're growing into a much larger market over a period of time. So I think that's what gets me very excited about um, just the you know if you look at if you think of healthcare as mature slowing down where we're worried about cost and value on the other side of the spectrum you have a fast growing market that is looking to utilize a lot more and is going to demand a lot more healthcare services that's high value over time right so that's the opportunity there you know so these global companies are beginning to look at these markets and invest in them, and look at them as long-term growth opportunities. Meanwhile, the domestic industries are also growing rapidly. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so when you have those kind of opportunities, all of a sudden, different countries open up, and different companies open up, and that's what makes you know makes U.S. healthcare investing super interesting.
0: So this, this whole conversation has been great. Um, I cannot let the team leave without touching upon one of the main themes across all markets currently and near and dear to my heart, uh, and that's the impact of rising rates. You know, the Fed has been very clear about its plan for the future path of interest rates, though we don't know where their terminal rate resides, but the path is higher. Um, and the only real debate is, is how quickly they're going to get to whatever terminal rate that they're targeting, but we're hearing similar outlooks from the ECB and other central banks around the globe as this era of central bank support is, is fading. So how for the international team, how does this shift across the globe impact your various areas of coverage?
2: Yeah. Thanks Doug for that question. And since I cover, uh, The banks uh, um, internationally, maybe I'll start first and then my colleagues can kind of uh, uh, chime in in terms of uh, their perspectives. So uh, I think from a bank analyst perspective, again, speaking in generalities, um, again, policy rate hikes by central banks worldwide uh, is usually a tailwind for most banks, however long it lasts assuming the banks have the right structure of loans and deposit books, because central bank policy rates affect banks' net interest margin in the short term, um, which then impacts banks' top line revenue. It's as simple as that, basically. Uh, But because I cover various market, right, not just just one, um, the central banks that I follow and care about are actually at different pace and also stage in terms of where they are on on the, in terms of interest rate hiking cycle. So for example, obviously you just mentioned what the U.S. is is doing. Um, I think consensus is still being built as we speak in terms of uh, Japan and Eurozone, ECB. Um, But if you look at some large EM countries, um, so you have Brazil and Russia that were ahead of the U.S. and a lot of the DM countries um, in terms of hiking, and they're now probably already on the tail end of their interest rate hiking cycle. And you have some other large EMs like India, and Indonesia are on hold at the moment. And they're saying that, look, economic recoveries are still incomplete and we need continued policy support. And then of course you have China who's moving the other way, easing at the moment. So basically what I'm trying to say is that I think it's safe to say it's almost impossible for me to get the timing of interest rate rising cycle or hiking cycle right for all these different markets and potentially leverage that as a tailwind for my bank investment. I, I just, I, yeah, it's just really hard for me to do. And I don't even try because honestly, I probably fail miserably. So when I'm thinking about bank investing, again, it is not timing the theme of interest rate rising cycle. It's again, bottoms up case by case, I try my very best to find banks that compound value over time across all cycles, interest rate cycle, but also credit cycle, right? These are big cycles. Um, So the full interest rate cycle, like you mentioned, on the up and also on the way down, and how that translates into a normalized, net interest margin on a five-year horizon is just one of several inputs or factors that impact how I think about in terms of projecting the estimate, uh, coming up with the estimate of intrinsic value for a bank. So it's not the only factor, rate rising cycle, and that being a tailwind that I consider when investing in a bank, albeit it it is is a nice tailwind however long it lasts. So again, you know, like We mentioned, um, you know, generally speaking, rate rising cycle is a boost to banks' top line revenue, right? Everything else equal. But I'm not 100% sure, I mean, these are all things that I need to consider. I'm not 100% sure everything else is equal, meaning um, banks may plow that extra top line that they make back into investing, right? Back, Back into investments or CapEx it may cost them higher to operate their existing franchise in a higher inflationary environment. It may also depend on the severity and pace and magnitude of the tightening cycle for these central banks and how much that has impacted the underlying economy as well as loan demand, as well as borrowers' ability to pay. So potentially has implications for credit cycle down the road. So these are all the things that I need to consider, unfortunately, um, when it comes to uh, coming up with the estimate of intrinsic value for for a bank, and so I I don't long story short I don't play that theme, um, and and again it's basically a bottoms up um, um, you know case by case uh, approach, and even though that theme is a nice very nice little tailwind for us at the moment,
1: it's just an interesting observation that you know you think back a year and a half to 2 years ago i mean it was full it was pedal to the metal you know let's let's uh stimulate as much as possible generally speaking and now here we are you know 18 months 2 years later and it's almost full speed in the other direction and trying to cool things off so you can just kind of see how volatile you know some of these moves and the stance how quickly it can change you know in a basically a pretty short period of time um, but yeah so across Consumer and industrial and tech. I mean, we there's the, there's going to be a mixed impact um, to the extent that we get a rising interest rate environment, which it, it sound, now seems kind of certain that we are. Um, you know, for example, some of the more growthier companies that derive a lot of their intrinsic value um, in future years and the cash flows in the interim years are maybe a little bit less um, to the extent that interest rates rise. Um, and the and the equity risk premium stays flat, then you know, just that mechanical shift from the higher, you know, risk-free rate at, at the at the low end plus the equity risk premium results in a higher discount rate, which means you know, a lower estimate of future value, you know, all ill sequel to the extent that there's not, you know, some kind of margin of safety in terms of a normalized interest rate assumption embedded in discount rates, but just optically speaking, you know, this is one of the factors um, that leads to maybe some of the more growthier type investments, um, you know, having a headwind with rising rate environment. Um, there's other factors uh, associated that as well, but, you know, just to highlight one um, and then on the other side, as eating mentioned, you know, the banks, you know, there's, there's some tailwinds with rising interest rates with banks um, and then somewhere in the middle, you know, we have a lot of, you know, strong companies with, with good balance sheets, a lot of cash, you know, the ability to invest, you know, either through their internally with their, with their free cash flows that they have or, you know, using some of the cash that's on hand and have to re- rely a little bit less on more expensive, uh, you know, capital markets uh, with rates rising in order to, in order to fund future growth. Um, you know, and also with a little bit, maybe maybe a little bit of pricing power to kind of offset some of these rising costs, you know, they're going to be a little bit more neutrally affected. So, I mean, long story short, within the portfolio, we have you know, different investments that are going to be impacted differently, you know, based on a rising interest rate environment. But again, just kind of going back to earlier comments, we try to invest and incorporate to the best of our ability, you know, all the different factors that we see or can see um, into our intrinsic value estimate and then still invest at a margin of safety. And, And that margin of safety can oftentimes kind of compensate for some of these unforeseen Um, situations or, or, you know, just policy stance shifts that maybe weren't factored into our original valuation assumptions, but, you know, given sort of the situation that we're facing now, there's still a little bit of room here in in a lot of the companies that we own uh, to where we can offset, you know, maybe a, you know, a slightly lower uh, valuation estimate and still have an attractive risk reward you know based on what on the on the current price where the where the stock currently trades so it'll be a mixed it's it's a
3: mixed impact I think at the portfolio level yeah I would completely agree with eating and Chris uh, again just just switching back to healthcare a little bit I think one of the things um, within the industry is that there are companies at the low end or the small cap and the mid-cap spectrum that are more invested in innovation and these companies are require a large amount of capital uh, to generate those future cash flows down the line. So those companies in my mind that depend on external capital uh, for future growth are more exposed to a rising interest rate environment. So they, they essentially have a durability risk embedded in them. And what what I'm thinking, this is just a theory, but since I've been thinking about this a lot more, I think the, the portion of the industry that could benefit out of this is going to be some of the companies that chris highlighted so these are your global pharmaceutical companies or global medical device companies or just global healthcare companies in general that have very high cash flow or strong cash flow they have the growth and they have strong balance sheets are able to weather a more difficult uh, interest rate environment so i think what is going to happen is the the smaller more local players are going to struggle a bit more and then the ones who are more global in nature that have a stronger business model are be are going to weather this a little bit better. So that's the way I'm looking at it when it comes to you know looking at global healthcare versus local healthcare. And on the other, the other side of it too is if you think about interest rate as a function of inflation, I also feel that healthcare is well placed. So the demand for healthcare is pretty, pretty inelastic. So, I mean, you could put off your, your you know, your, your elective surgery or your routine visits or diagnostics for, a, for maybe a few quarters or a year or two, but eventually you're going to need healthcare. So given that, given, given that setup and the fact that they are able to pass on price, but also maintain pretty good margins over time, and that this industry has shown it over time, I think it's well set up in inflationary environment as well. So I think when it comes to those, putting the two things together, which is risk capital and inflationary environment, the risk for both, I think global diversified healthcare companies are well set up through the cycle.
0: So Chendor, Ting, Chris, thank you guys so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Fantastic stuff, very interesting. Uh, and hopefully the listeners will enjoy it as well.
2: Thank you so much. Doug. Thanks Doug, thank thank you, you, Doug. I appreciate it.
0: This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.